Gresham College presents The Future of London Government, Part 3 Continuous Revolution The Struggle to Reform London's Government by Professor George W. Jones, Emeritus Professor of Government, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Well, Tony has presented us with a history of attempts to reorganise London's government up to today. And I've been asked to look at possible future reforms to the structure. I've got two main messages which I'll end up with, really echoing Vernon's point that there is no political community called London, really. I conclude there is no government of London. There is the governance of London by many separate organisations and people. And my second main message at the end is there's no one right way to organise the government of London, so it really would be sensible to stop going up this cul-de-sac and seeking, indeed, to reorganise the government of London. Now, what I draw from Tony's story, History of London's Governmental System, it reveals a relentless, continuous search for the right solution. But it's never been found over those many years. There's some fundamental problems. There's a fundamental tension, which Tony brought out, and so too did Vernon, between centralisers and decentralisers. The former emphasised the need for a governing authority to encompass the whole of London, while the latter, the decentralisers, emphasised the need for the parts of London to have their own governing bodies. And we often from time to time end up with some compromise in which we have both a two-tier system, one for the uh, top tier and another for the bottom. A related problem is to devise for a wide range of public services an appropriate relationship between policy-making, the strategic function, and implementation, the executive function. And we've heard that word strategic and strategy mentioned already today. But can you really separate at all strategy from implementation? If you're devising a strategy, you surely want to be aware of the consequences in detail of what your strategy might produce. And if you're implementing something, you want to know what general direction you're going in. You don't want to exist in a kind of directionless, pragmatic void. So I would raise some doubts about this uh, attempt to separate strategy from implementation. Another relationship well brought out by both Tony and Vernon that adds a complicating dimension to London's government, that's the influence of central government, reluctant to concede self-determination to its capital city. And then into this mix of pressures and tensions, the new dynamic was introduced in 2000, the establishment 
of a mayor for London, the UK's first directly elected mayor, executive mayor. Now Tony in his book The Politics of London 2004 produced a very vivid diagram of the maze of London government at that time and he wrote this extraordinary muddle of overlapping and often competitive institutions is every bit as bad as the chaos of London's Victorian administration. That's what it looks like. Slow decision-making and weak government are the inevitable consequence. Now, given the history of instability in London's governmental arrangements, I predict that the future will be similarly unstable. To achieve any reform will be a struggle because of the different views of the different interests involved. Analysis of London government raises three major structural problems. What is London? This first question remains very significant. It raises the whole issue as to whether the boundaries of the GLA are right. For some, the GLA is too small. It doesn't cover the area inside the M25 motorway box, which some people think would be a very clear boundary. It doesn't indeed cover built-up London. And it's well short of the area that's economically dependent on London, which should encompass at least the greater southeast region, if you take into account land use, planning, infrastructure, transport. For others, however, the area's too large, covering in its outer reaches, Vernon mentioned this, Really, areas that were once in Essex, Kent, Middlesex and Surrey, many of whose inhabitants do not feel they are Londoners. And as somebody who lives in what I call the real London, I feel they're not Londoners as well. <laughs> so what is London? Very debatable topic. Secondly, what to do with the boroughs? The question is whether the lower tier of the boroughs is too many or too few. Formed in 1965, they often reflect no community, no local community that's clearly identifiable to local people. And yet they also seem too small to provide their services as efficiently as local people desire. Some of them are artificial amalgamations of previously separate authorities to which some of the public still feel attached. Ken Livingstone, who was unsympathetic to the boroughs, had plans to merge the 32 into five wedge-shaped triangles whose points converged in the centre of London. They would have joined together rich and poor areas and they'd have followed the radial road route. Now his aborted plan and the present boundaries leave without a distinct governmental body the part of London that people all over the world identify actually 
as London. It's that part of London with the iconic buildings and monuments, the famous roads and railway stations, the heart of London. This central core is splintered. It lies partly within ten boroughs, called in the technocrats' jargon, the Central Activities Zone, CAZ. An area of 13 square miles, residential population of 280,000, with a 30% of London's employment. This area, real London, has no single local government unit of its own. The institution closest to a government of this central London area is one we heard about right at the beginning, Central London Forward, established in 2007 by seven of the boroughs in CAS to promote the case for central London in the absence of a formal central London sub-regional government, and to lobby on behalf of central London. Its latest publication, The Case for Central London, covers a whole lot of policy areas, but makes no mention of how central London might be governed. I suppose its constituent authorities would be most unenthusiastic if uh, they had attempted to do so. And then there's the City of London, a glaring anomaly with its medieval government of the city corporation, Lord Mayor and Alderman, its unique electoral arrangements which allow both residents and businesses to vote, its antique wards, its own police force, separate from the Metropolitan Police and its great wealth as London's financial powerhouse. It's really a glorified central business and financial district. Well, it was said by the earlier Herbert Royal Commission that the City of London shows that logic has its limits and the city lies outside them. The third big issue is what to do below the boroughs. What governmental arrangements, if any, should exist below the boroughs? Now the rhetoric of all political parties is to champion localism and decentralisation to something below the bottom tier of local government, to uh, that warm word, communities, and some less uh, amorphously to urban parishes. Now that means that the most advanced thinking today is to go back to the 19th century. That was what they had then. I noticed that in its 2005 manifesto, Labour put forward a proposal to introduce urban parishes across London. I may have missed it in the latest one, but I didn't find that pledge repeated. Now, thinking up plans to reorganise the Government of London is a great game. In the 1990s, Tony Travers and I devised eight options in a book called The New Government of London. This was before we had the present arrangements. Let me just go through them. These are the options that you can play around with. 
a powerful London regional authority which would take control of services from central government, really replacing GOL, which is, we are promised to be abolished. Secondly, a London regional authority as above with a directly elected mayor. We knew that was on the cards once Simon Jenkins had influenced Tony Blair that the way to weaken Labour groups on councils was to have a directly elected mayor. Thirdly, an elected transport authority for the South East, leaving the boroughs largely unchained, changed and the boroughs will be largely unchanged under the previous options too. But you'd be focusing on transport, which was reckoned to be the big problem area. Fourthly, an indirectly elected advisory committee for the London region, leaving the boroughs largely unchanged and with neighbourhood or parish councils if they were wanted locally. An indirectly elected advisory council are really chosen from the units of local government below. Fifth, keep the present system, but central government to appoint a minister for London. And we've had these ministers from time to time. Uh, if you don't believe in local government, then why not centralise it and have clear accountability in the hands of a minister who would be accountable to Parliament. Six, expand the City of London, but they never have, but, uh, that, and that's what they should have done, of course, in the 19th century, but they wanted to preserve their privileges and power. In a small area, they feared it would be diluted if they got extended. Seven, keep the present system, but add a central London planning agency. Deal with the problem of the core by having a body, an entity that would focus on the planning of the use of land in that area. And eighthly, no fundamental change, save for some minor improvements that could be agreed. I've also often argued myself for the establishment of a unitary all-purpose authority following more or less the boundaries of the old London County Council, which to me encompasses the real London that people know is London. And in addition to that, you'd have a number of unitaries that encircled this new central London authorities. And all these unitaries, which would mean that in every area you'd know precisely what your local government was, there'd be clear accountability. All these unitaries would select a Senate for the South East region to give advice to central government about its major planning, infrastructure and transport decisions, which to me are essentially national decisions and shouldn't be handed down to regional bodies. Those are national decisions. And beneath these unitaries could be neighbourhood or parish councils, wherever a majority of local people wanted them and were prepared to pay for them. The willingness to be 
taxed for your government is a very important test whether you really want it. When Tony Travers and I wrote that in the 90s, there wasn't a GLA and there wasn't a, an all-London authority. The GLA that came about was a regional or metropolitan authority. It wasn't, wasn't a local authority. Local government in London's mainly in the hands of the boroughs, which have a very influential organisation, London councils, representing, protecting and promoting their interests. Some may wonder whether we shouldn't abolish the GLA and turn to a body representing the boroughs, perhaps a senate of the leaders of the boroughs, to act as the government of London. So there's another model that if Tony and I rewrote the book, we'd have to include. Ken Livingstone indeed proposed replacing the London Assembly, which is a weak and feeble body, nothing like what a council should really be. Replace the London Assembly with this joint borough institution. It would be a stronger check on the mayor than the existing assembly. Look, we can all play around with these models. They can be pulled out when the desire to tamper with a governmental arrangement or any other metropolitan area comes round, as it surely will. But looking at the manifestos and the statements of this government, I don't think that in the immediate future we're going to see major reorganisation of our government. Let's have some concluding thoughts. London faces periodical reorganisation in its governmental arrangements because there is no one right solution. But people think there is. They go on thinking there is. There's one round the corner. That's why I think it is a continuous or has been a continuous revolution. The City of London has continued and in my crystal ball it will still continue. The directly elected mayor is a radical institution. Now whether one person rule and by a person who cannot be recalled, MPs are to be recalled but not directly elected mayors, the people can't recall a mayor if the mayor goes wrong, nor can a council pass a, a vote of no confidence, even with 55%. Um, I, I write a lot with John Stewart, and when talking about directly elected mayors, I, I do say it looks very much like the Führer principle. John thinks I, I shouldn't write that, so we always take that out of our uh, articles. It's a radical institution, but whether one person rule is better than collegial cabinet rule will be apparent only after a few years. I prefer myself, collective government, in which you can have on policy problems a variety of perspectives, analysing and assessing proposals, where at the end of the day you've got all of you to agree. And uh, the Spectator, the current issue of the Spectator, I commend it to you as an interesting article by Mirabar Hidel, assessing Boris's performance up to now. And it's, uh, she finds it hard to find 
any success. Despite weak and confusing governmental arrangements, London has continued to evolve and prosper. It's attracted people investment. Indeed, I'm picking up here something that I think Tony said. Those who developed the city, ranging from the landowning aristocrats to the modern property developers, are by far the most important determinants of London's long-term shape and economic strength. Would a more rationally organised and stronger government ruin it? Perhaps the best way ahead is not to reform London's government. To embark yet again on reform would be a costly and divisive venture and a great distraction from tackling the big problems that lie ahead and a distraction from the basic role of local government and of providing services to the people. Now, what's the best way to deal with the intractable economic and social problems we face? Since no one knows, it's better not to rely on action by central government, but to let local authorities try out their own approaches that suit the conditions of their localities. Any recovery plan, to my mind, should be based on letting local authorities and local businesses experiment, not on central government telling them what to do. Well, is such local action likely to be the way ahead? Or should London persist in grand projects in these straitened times, like Crossrail and the Olympic Games... Perhaps we could drop one of those, or both. And London, echoing a point made earlier, is a rich place that pays far more in tax than is spent on it. Don't mind that. Devolved fiscal freedom would allow more decisions about the city to be made by local politicians accountable to local voters. A great city like London shouldn't have to go begging to central government for funds. London should be governing itself, responsible for shaping its future development and accountable to its citizens. It shouldn't be regarded as just an agent or instrument of central government. The new coalition was promised to abolish the government office for London. Well, that would be yet another stage in the continuous revolution of London's government. Thank you. For all information, please visit our website, www.gresham.ac.uk.